Let's start tonight by asking ourselves the question, what is justification? What is justification? The question was answered in great detail by the Council of Trent in the decree on justification. But in that same decree, the Council of Trent also gave a short answer, and I quote, the justification of the sinner is a translation from that state in which a man is born a child of the first Adam to the state of grace and of the adoption of the sons of God through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Close quote. The justification of a sinner is a translation from the state in which a man is born a child of the first Adam to the state of grace and of the adoption of the sons of God the second Adam, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, on the one hand, it means that justification is a true freeing from sin, both original sin and actual sin, if it be present. Sin is actually removed, not just covered up or ignored by God, okay? So that's on the one hand. Sin is truly removed. And on the other hand, Justification is the filling of the soul of that justified person with sanctifying grace, which is a created share in God's own life that makes the person holy. Okay, so justification consists in a movement from the fallen, sinful state in which Adam placed us into the state of grace. That's what the Council of Trent meant when it stated that justification of the sinner is a translation from that state which a child is born, a child child of the first Adam, to the state of grace and adoption of the sons of God, to the second Adam, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Okay, so justification is a movement from the fallen sinful state into the state of grace. Now let's take a moment to quickly review what we mean by the state of grace. Grace means free gift. We remember that it's a free gift from God. Now, there's more than one type of grace. For example, actual grace. Actual grace gives us the supernatural power to do supernaturally good acts. So actual grace supernaturalizes the way we act. But when we speak of being justified, we're speaking of being in the state of grace, which means we're speaking of sanctifying grace. Actual grace supernaturalizes the way we act, but sanctifying grace changes our being. It changes how we are. Sanctifying grace sanctifies us. It makes us be holy. Sanctifying grace is actually a created share in God's own life that he places into our souls to give us a new type of life, supernatural life, and this makes us holy. This is what St. Peter is referring to in 2 Peter 1.4, when he writes of us becoming partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. When we're in the state of grace, God has actually placed a created share in his own life into our soul, and it completely penetrates the soul, filling it with holiness. Again, sanctifying grace is a created share in God's own life 
He places it into our soul to give us a new life, supernatural life, and this makes us holy. This makes us partakers of the divine nature, and that is what it means to be justified. Okay. The great Catholic author Frank Sheed commented that supernatural life is given to man in this life. And what man does with it is the primary story of his life. Everything else is incidental, on the fringe, of no permanent importance. We come to die. We are judged by the answer to that one question, whether we have the supernatural life in our soul. If the answer is yes, then to heaven we shall surely go. For the supernatural life is the power to live the life of heaven. If the answer is no, then we cannot possibly go to heaven if we could not live there when we got there. So if we die in the state of grace, if we die justified, if we die with sanctifying grace, we can and will go to heaven. If we die without it, we can't go to heaven, which means that we have to go to hell. Okay, a little more background before we turn to today's topic. And for this part, we rely on Monsignor Fenton. Monsignor Fenton was a student of the great Father Garigou Lagrange, one of the theological experts who assisted the head of the Holy Office, Carlo Anoviani, at the Second Vatican Council. Monsignor Fenton, the fathers of the Church, men like St. Augustine, St. Ambrose, St. Ephraim, St. Basil the Great, were those early Catholic writers who were remarkable both for the holiness of their lives and the orthodoxy of their teachings. Theologians cite the fathers as authentic witnesses of the faith as well as the practice of the ancient church. Because of the times in which they lived, they were in a particularly good position to know the content and the significance of the preaching of the apostles. As a result, when one father or a group of them state that a particular doctrine had been revealed by God and taught by our Lord, this testimony naturally has a tremendous weight. But when the fathers unanimously testify that some doctrine is a part of the divine revelation, then their testimony is absolutely certain. The Church knows that the unanimous teaching of the fathers on a matter of faith or morals cannot be an error. Okay, now we're going to talk about the authority of the scholastic theologians. But first off, we better answer the question, who are the scholastic theologians? There's a big clue in their names since scholastic means school. So the scholastic theologians, and those include men like St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Bonaventure, they're traditional academic teachers who after the time of the Fathers of the Church have written traditional and scientific explanations of the Catholic faith, which have been recognized and used as such by the Church. Monsignor Fenton explains, quote, When the entire body of scholastic theologians asserts that some proposition is of the Catholic faith, their testimony is absolutely reliable. Because of the particular function of the scholastics, if all of them should be an error on a point of this kind, then the Catholic Church would be deceived. They're the qualified exponents of Catholic doctrine in the schools of the Church. Their unanimous testimony 
that a definite doctrine has been revealed by God and is to be accepted by all with the assent of divine faith mirrors the teaching of the church herself. This unanimity of the scholastics must be reckoned in the same way as that of the church fathers. The testimony of the theologians is valid even for propositions which are put forth as theologically certain. Should the teaching of the theologians be sufficiently clear on a point that is not received with full unanimity, the opposition to this thesis would take the form of a rash or temerarious proposition. Close quote. Okay, so the fathers of the church, men like St. Augustine and St. Basil the Great, were early Catholic writers who were remarkable both for their holiness and for the orthodox of their teachings. And when the fathers unanimously testify that some doctrine is a part of divine revelation, then their testimony is absolutely certain. The scholastic theologians, which include men like St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Bonaventure, are traditional academic teachers who, after the time of the fathers of the church, have written traditional and scientific explanations of the Catholic faith, which have been recognized and used as such by the church. Their unanimous testimony that a definite doctrine has been revealed by God must be reckoned in the same way as that of the church fathers. Okay, quick review. What have we seen so far? We've seen that justification is a movement from the sinful fallen state into the state of grace. And we've seen that when we speak of being in the state of grace, by that we mean that God has actually placed a created share of his own life into our soul. And that it completely penetrates our soul, totally filling it with holiness. When we're justified, God has placed a new type of life, supernatural life into our soul, and this makes us be holy. This created share in God's own life is known as sanctifying grace. And we've seen that the fathers of the church, men like St. Augustine and St. Ephraim of Syria, were those early Catholic writers who were remarkable both for the holiness of their lives and for the orthodox of their teachings. And when the fathers unanimously testify that some doctrines are part of divine revelation, then their testimony is absolutely certain. We've seen that the scholastic theologians, men like St. Thomas and St. Bonaventure, are the, are the traditional and academic teachers who, after the time of the fathers of the church, have written traditional and scientific explanations of the Catholic faith, which have been recognized and used as such by the church. Their unanimous testimony that a definite doctrine has been revealed by God and is to be accepted by all with the assent of divine faith must be reckoned in the same way as that of the church fathers. All that by way of background. Let's turn to the topic today. Tonight we're going to look, take a quick look at the theology of Father Feeney. Some brief background for those who don't know who Father Feeney is. Father Leonard Feeney, who lived from 1897 to 1978, was a Jesuit priest from Massachusetts, who, while working in the St. Benedict Center near Harvard, made hundreds of converts. He must have been blessed with a very dynamic personality. In 1947, he decided that what was preventing the church from fulfilling her mission to make disciples of all the nations was that the church had not been strongly affirming the dogma that there's no salvation outside the church. By this, Father Feeney meant that salvation required incorporation into the church by baptism of water. The position of Father Feeney was basically, without sacramental baptism, there's no salvation. 
To be saved, you must actually be incorporated into the Catholic Church by baptism. He taught that by the desire to be baptized before he was actually baptized, a man could be justified. But he denied that such a man could be saved as a result of the desire of baptism, even though he had been justified. He was dismissed from the Jesuits in 1949 on account of disobedience, not because of his teaching. And in 1953, he was excommunicated by the Holy Office on account of grave disobedience to church authority. But he did die reconciled to the church. That's it in a nutshell. And although we are going to critique several aspects of his theology, before we do that, it is important to keep in mind that his position is much, much closer to the truth than the current insane uh, atmosphere we find of universal salvation, where after they die, everybody apparently loads up in a pink sailboat and cruises off to heaven, in which we have priests in good standing arguing that no one is going to hell. So before we go on, let's just deal with that once and for all. On November 14, 1459, Pope Pius II condemned as a most pernicious error against the dogmas of the Holy Fathers of the Church the statement that, quote, all Christians are to be saved, close quote. Okay, if it's condemned to say that all Christians are to be saved, if that statement is a most pernicious error, then the opposite must be true, which is that some Christians are not saved. In other words, some Christians are damned. We call him our Savior. It's not for nothing. Okay, so that although we are going to critique the theology of Father Feeney, it must be said that his position is far closer to truth than these current hallucinations that no one goes to hell. So, let's take a look at a few things. We'll start by taking a quick look at the practical importance of the dogma that there's no salvation outside the church. Then we'll take a look at sacramental baptism, baptism of desire, and the baptism of blood. And finally, we'll take a look at justification and salvation. First, the practical importance of the dogma that there's no salvation outside the church. Without identifying with his particular interpretation of the dogma. Nevertheless, it's safe to say that Father Feeney has a valid insight when he says that the underpinning of Catholic liberalism here in the United States was, and is, the failure to teach and defend the dogma that there's no salvation outside the church. Do we as a Catholic people really believe that this is the one true church? Does the average American Catholic really believe that this faith is worth dying for? Why have so many American Catholics left the church and gone over to the sects? Why so much false ecumenism? It's clear there is a great practical importance to this dogma. Second, sacramental baptism, baptism of desire, and baptism of blood. We'll start with a quote from Father Feeney summarizing his teaching here. Father Feeney, quote, If you do not receive baptism of water, you cannot be saved, whether you were guilty or not guilty for not having received it. You are lacking something required for heaven, close quote. 
Okay, so it's obvious. According to Father Feeney, no one can be saved without receiving sacramental baptism. Father Feeney, quote, Every little Catholic child in the Catholic school, from the time of Cardinal Gibbons on, has been required to say and answer the question, How many kinds of baptism are there? There are three kinds of baptism. Baptism of water, baptism of desire, and baptism of blood. That is heresy. Close quote, Father Feeney. I'm quoting him there. So, Father Feeney claims it's heresy to say there are three kinds of baptism. Baptism of water, the baptism of desire, and the baptism of blood. Let's compare that claim to the teaching found in the last universal catechism, one that had actually been promulgated during Father Feeney's lifetime, and that's the catechism of Pope St. Pius X. We'll turn to the section on baptism, and I'll read two questions from the last official catechism for the 1983 one. Question, is baptism necessary to salvation? Answer, baptism is absolutely necessary to salvation, for our Lord has expressly said, unless a man be born again of water and the Holy Ghost, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Question, can the absence of baptism be supplied in any other way? Answer, the absence of baptism can be supplied by martyrdom, which is called baptism of blood, or by an act of perfect love of God or of contrition, along with the desire, at least implicit, of baptism. And this is called baptism of desire. Close quote, the Catechism of St. Pius X. So evidently it's not only not heresy, it's actually church teaching refer to three kinds of baptism. Baptism of water, baptism of desire, and baptism of blood. Recognizing, of course, that only one of these three, baptism of water, is a sacrament. The other two are able to justify the recipient in the absence of baptism of water. Please note that this is not the same as saying that everyone in his goat who does not receive sacramental baptism will automatically receive the grace of the baptism of desire or the baptism of blood. It merely points out that they do, in fact, exist. Let's take a closer look. In his moral theology, the great doctor of the church, St. Alphonsus, summarizes the teaching of the scholastic theologians. I quote from St. Alphonsus. The baptism of blood is the shedding of blood or death suffered for the faith or for some other Christian virtue. This baptism remits the fault and the punishment due sin. And baptism of desire is perfect conversion to God by contrition or love of God above all things, accompanied by an explicit or implicit desire for true baptism of water. Close quotes, St. Alphonsus, Bishop and Doctor of the Church. This is just standard church teaching. St. Thomas has a specific question about the three baptisms, which anyone can look up. But you can find this in virtually any scholastic tract which treats a baptism. Last night I pulled two scholastic manuals off the shelf in my library. These would be manuals used to train priests in the old days, put together by the scholastic theologians. Here's a theological proposition which I translated from one of them. Quote, Three baptisms are fittingly enumerated. The baptism of water, the baptism of desire, 
and the baptism of blood. The baptism of blood has a preeminence over the other two. Of course, not so in far as it is sacramental, because only the baptism of water is properly sacramental, but insofar as its effect. Close call. Now that's not heresy. That's church teaching, and it's clear enough. But just to make the point, I'll read a theological proposition, and a few more lines I translated from the other man. Quote, Baptism of desire, or even martyrdom, are able to supply for baptism of water. Explanation. Even if baptism of water is necessary by the necessity of means for salvation, nonetheless, other means are not lacking to obtain salvation. But these means are not independent of the sacrament itself. These means are the desire of baptism for adults and martyrdom for all. Therefore, the baptism of water is said to be necessary in itself or in desire. Therefore, baptism may be distinguished into three species, water, desire, and blood. The theological certainty of this proposition is proximate to the faith in regards to the statement that baptism is desire is able to supply for baptism of water, and theologically certain in regards to the statement that martyrdom is able to supply for baptism of water. Close quotes. Now remember what we heard when we considered the teaching of the scholastic theologians. The unanimity of the scholastics must be reckoned in the same way as the church fathers. The testimony of the theologians is valid, even for propositions which are put forth as theologically certain. So Father Feeney might have been a remarkable man, but this is the teaching of the church, and it can't be doubted. Back to Father Feeney's teaching. Quote, Father taught that God would have seen to it that those few martyrs who reported to die without baptism would not have left this life without baptism. Close quote. In other words, unbaptized martyrs didn't really die unbaptized. They weren't baptized in their blood, but somehow someone got to them with water and baptized them before they died. Well, this past week we had the feast of St. Emerentiana. The reading in the old divine office tells us about her. Quote, Emerentiana a Roman virgin, and the foster sister of the Blessed Agnes. While she was still a catechumen, burning with faith and charity, rebuked the idol worshippers who were full of fury against the Christians, whereupon a mob assembled and stoned her. Praying their torment at the grave of St. Agnes, and having been baptized in her own blood, so generously shed for Christ, she gave up her soul unto God. Close quote. So St. Emerantiana, who is in heaven and who is publicly honored as a saint, you can pull out your hand missile and look at January 23rd. St. Emerantiana was baptized in her own blood. Period. Close the book. Okay. Third aspect of Father's teaching regarding justification and salvation. Father Feeney, quote, Question, what does baptism of desire mean? Answer, it means the belief in the necessity of baptism of water for salvation and a full intent to receive it. Question, can baptism of desire save you? Answer, never. Question, could baptism of desire save you if you really believed it could? Answer, it could not. Question, could it possibly suffice for you to pass into a state of justification? Answer, it could. Question, if you got into the state of justification with the aid of baptism and desire, and then failed to receive baptism of water, could you be saved? Answer, never. Father Feeney, 
Can anyone now be saved without baptism of water? Answer, no one can be saved without baptism of water. Question, are the souls of those, of those who die in the state of justification saved if they have not received the baptism of water? Answer, no, they are not saved. Close quotes, Father Feeney. So Father Feeney states that the baptism of desire means the belief and necessity of baptism of water for salvation and a full intent to receive it, but even though it can justify you, it can't save you. But this contradicts the teaching of the Council of Trent. I'll quote from the Council of Trent. For since Christ Jesus himself, as the head into the members and the vine into the branches, continually infuses strength into those justified, which strength always precedes, accompanies, and follows their good works, and without which they could not in any manner be pleasing and meritorious before God, we must believe that nothing further is wanting to those justified to prevent them from being considered to have, by those very works which have been done in God, fully satisfied the divine law according to the state of this life and to truly merit eternal life to be obtained in its due time, provided they depart this life in grace. Close quote. We must believe that nothing further is wanting to those justified to prevent them from being considered to have fully satisfied divine law according to the state of this life and have truly merited eternal life to be obtained in its due time provided they depart this life in grace. Which is what we said just in different words when we started off. Justification is a movement from the fallen sinful state into the state of grace. And when we talk about being in the state of grace, by that we mean God has actually placed a created share of his own life into our soul. It completely penetrates our soul, filling it with holiness. So when we're justified, God has placed a new kind of life, supernatural life, into our soul. It makes us holy. This new created share in God's own life is called sanctifying grace. And if we die in the state of grace, if we die justified, if we die with sanctifying grace, we can and will go to heaven. If we die without it, we can't. We'll go to hell. So when Father Feeney says that the souls of those who die in the state of justification are not saved, if they have not received the baptism of water, he is wrong. It's against the teaching of the Council of Trent, and it's wrong. Period. Okay. So what have we seen? Let's walk back through it. We've seen justification as a movement from the fallen sinful state to the state of grace. And we've seen that when we speak of being in the state of grace, by that we actually mean that God has created a created share of his own life into our soul. It completely penetrates our, penetrates our soul, filling it with holiness. When we're justified, he's placed his supernatural life into our soul and it makes us be holy. And that created share in God's own life is called sanctifying grace. We've seen that the fathers of the church, men like St. Augustine and St. Basil the Great, were those early Catholic writers who were remarkable both for the holiness of their lives and the orthodoxy of their teachings. And then when the fathers unanimously testify that some doctrine is part of divine revelation, their testimony is absolutely certain. We've seen that the scholastic theologians, like St. Thomas and St. Bonaventure, are traditional academic teachers who, after the time of the fathers of the church, have written traditional and scientific explanations of the faith which have been recognized and used as such by the church. Their unanimous testimony that a definite doctrine has been revealed by God must be reckoned in the same way as that of the church fathers. 
We've seen that baptism is absolutely necessary to salvation, for our Lord has expressly said that unless a man be born again of water and the Holy Ghost, he cannot enter the kingdom of God, but that the absence of sacramental baptism can be supplied by martyrdom, which is called the baptism of blood, or by an act of perfect love of God or contrition, along with the desire, at least implicit, of baptism, and that this is called the baptism of desire. Let's close with some excerpts from the letter of the Holy Office to the Archbishop of Boston regarding Father Feeney's teachings. Quote, Among those things which the Church has always preached and will never cease to preach is that, in, that infallible statement by which we are taught that there is no salvation outside the Church. However, this dogma must be understood in that sense in which the Church herself understands it. For it was not to private judgments that our Savior gave for explanation those things that are contained in the deposit of faith, but to the teaching authority of the Church. Now, in the first place, the Church teaches that in this matter there is a question of a most strict command of Jesus Christ, for he explicitly enjoined on his apostles to teach all nations to observe all things whatsoever he himself had commanded. Now, among the commandments of Christ, we are commanded to be incorporated by baptism into the mystical body of Christ, which is the Church, and to remain united to Christ and to his vicar, through whom he himself, in a visible manner, governs the Church on earth. Therefore, no one will be saved who, knowing the Church to be, having been divinely established by Christ, nevertheless refuses to submit to the Church or withholds obedience from the Roman pontiff, the vicar of Christ on earth. In its infinite mercy, God has willed that the effects necessary for one to be saved of those helps to salvation which are directed towards man's final end can also be obtained in certain circumstances when those helps are used only in desire and longing. Therefore, that one may obtain eternal salvation it is not always required that it be incorporated in the church actually as a member, but it is necessary that he at least be united to her by desire and longing. However, this desire need not always be explicit as it is in catechumens. But when a person is involved in invincible ignorance, God accepts also an implicit desire, so-called because it is included in that good disposition of soul, whereby a person wishes his will to be conformed to the will of God. But it must not be thought that any kind of desire entering the church suffices that one may be saved. It is necessary that the desire by which one is related to the church be animated by perfect charity. Nor can an implicit desire produce its effect unless a person has supernatural faith. These things are clearly taught in that encyclical which is issued by the sovereign pontiff, Pope Pius XII, on the mystical body of Jesus Christ. For in this encyclical, the sovereign pontiff clearly distinguishes between those who are actually incorporated into the church as members and those who are united to the church only by desire. Tonight, let us thank God for the priceless gift of the faith, for the priceless gift of being members of the one true church, outside of which there is no salvation.